We are now about to hear the third in our fascinating series of recordings of the Easter Rebels. Today you will hear the lost and recovered voice of Tom Clark, to be followed by a live studio discussion of what we have heard. This panel will be asked to react to the voice and the ideas just broadcast and to respond to queries from the public on related teams. You can contact the station on 087 69 44 500. At this time, there are many treatments of the theme of the 1916 Rising, but none as dramatic as this series. We hope that you enjoy and benefit from our broadcast of Lost Easter Voices. Hello, I'm Charlotte Tan, and we are here to listen to the third of these amazing recordings of the dead 1916 leaders. I have guests in the studio with me to discuss what we hear. Tom Clark was the third leader to be executed with Pierce and McDonough. This is part of the Lost Easter Voice series. We here at Near FM were fortunate to get to remaster the original Delicate Cylinders and now we get to share these unique recordings of the executed 1916 rebels with our listeners. We listened previously to the voices of Pierce and McDonough and now we listen to the voice of Tom Clark. As I've tried to explain, Mr Clark, sir, if you might sit here nearer my recording device. So, Maxwell pursues me still. No, I assure you, this has nothing to do with my uncle, the General. I am a social historian. I merely wish to record your words for prosperity. You must understand that I am immediately defensive when I hear that accent. My English accent? The accent of interrogation. But you yourself, sir, were born of the Isle of Wight, I understand. Done your checking, eh? I assure you that my motives are purely academic. I have no views on the conflict. You should have. The English establishments also treat badly the English man and woman. Not as cruelly as the Irish and other races, but still poorly. I implore you not to make me the token English enemy. I, I, I only wish to obtain your views on the Rising. Um, yours was the first signature on the proclamation, I understand. That was used against me in Maxwell's show trial. Your colleagues, Pierce and McDonough, have consented and are recorded. Recorded, eh? <laughs> and what did they tell the British? Please, this is not evidence gathering. As Pierce observed, uh, he has been sentenced to be shot. Uh, what more can they do to him? Blacken his name. Our names. This is social history, sir. The British establishment are already at work at blackening your name. This is an opportunity to set the record straight, to tell your story, why you have lived as you did, and why you will die as you will. All right, but be warned. I'll call a halt if any question strays into intelligence gathering. Very well. I'll start by saying it is the early morning of the 3rd of May, and I'm in the cell of Mr. Tom Clark. Uh, can I start by asking you about your early life in the Isle of Wight, and about your parents? I know nothing about the Isle. We left there when I was quite young. As my father. He was an Irishman who enlisted in the British Army and rose to sergeant. Shortly after my birth, he was demobilised and our family emigrated to Africa. Uh, what, were we, what were your impressions of that country? Uneventful. My formative years there were spent in Dungannon and County Tyrone. That is my home. We'd returned there after several years in South Africa. When you say formative, was that where you became a nationalist? Yes. I witnessed the fact that anyone displaying allegiance to Ireland was regarded as a second-class citizen. I witnessed the arrogance of the British police and military. I saw nationalist riots brutally put down. And? At the age of 16, I helped form the IRB circle in the town. 
Maybe we should erase that admission from my recording. <laughs> Relax, Mr. Clark. I understand that you are known for doing much worse. <laughs> oh, true, true. So continue. Your early life in Dungannon. My activities were opposed by my father after a visit from the local RIC. So many unfamiliar initials. Who are the IRC? The lovely Royal Irish Constabulary. My father and me had a bitter row and I left home. My mother Mary, a, a fine Tipperary woman, I knew would be worried for me, so I was glad to write to her after six months and tell her I was safe in the United States. So you were well away from Irish politics? No, more deeply involved. I joined Clan Gale, the American wing of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and there... Oh. What's wrong? You look concerned? I'm not sure I want to reveal any, any of this to whoever will hear it. No one of military status will hear this, I swear. You can't so swear. They check our letters. Always have. Put spies into cells with us to eavesdrop. I have witnessed it all. They may well confiscate your device on your way out. There are people still active in America. Don't mention the names, then. Give them pseudonyms. Or initials. Right. That just leaves me incriminating myself. Suppose that is true. What's the worst that can happen? You're to be shot within the hour. So, they hear about America and they give you a year in jail? That staves off execution for a year. <laughs> I don't wish to stave it off, as you put it. I desire to join my comrades in arms in front of the firing squad shortly. What can I do to convince you that it is safe to record this material for future listeners? Tell me a secret about General Maxwell, your uncle. Tell me something that, that an accomplice of his would not dare tell. That is an impossible task. I know very little of the career of General Maxwell. We are not close. I only know that he was served with distinction in Egypt and elsewhere, but I suspect that is not the kind of information that suits you. Crushing the liberty of foreign races? I know that of him. Tell me something more personal. I don't know him. Why, the only time we sat together was two days ago when I had tea with him, as I obtained permission to conduct this interview. Then be indiscreet about the tea party. What did he say about our situation? Uh, let me think. God, you may not like hearing his views. I know what the English think of me. Let's hear confirmation. Well, he observed that the Irish seem to be on the verge of madness, which finds its outlet in poetry. That you seem to live entirely in the past, brooding over its wrongs. And he finally told me as I left him that the only thing all Irish, all Irish men are united on is a keen desire to get everything they can out of the British. <laughs> oh, all true. Too true to be made up. And, my friend, the only thing we Irish want from the British is the freedom of our island. Uh, so, can we continue? Uh, what, what happened in America? Well, I was dispatched by... <sighs> it doesn't matter. On a bombing mission to London under the name of Henry Wilson. But the entire operation was already under surveillance by British agents. Uh, too many people were involved and too many were talking. Myself and another were arrested in London soon after arrival. I was tried for treason, felony and sentenced to life in prison. How long did you serve? Fifteen years where I endured brutal conditions, which included prolonged solitary confinement, intellectual starvation, constantly disrupted sleep, inadequate nutrition, and little exercise. I saw other men go mad under these conditions. I understood that there were humane rules regulating the treatment of prisoners to avoid the petty whims of warders. Not for the Irish prisoners. We were termed the special men. Some twelve of us were kept in special penal cells so that we could be conveniently persecuted in a system devised by Captain Harris, the governor of the prison. Surely not. Yeah. The officers in charge of us were given the free hand to persecute us as they pleased. A 
harassment morning, noon and all through the night. It was a system device to drive us insane. I'll never forget the night that poor White had realised that he was going mad. I lay on my bed and listened to the poor man chewing glass as he went, saying, cursing the English brutality from the bottom of his heart and beseeching God to strike him dead sooner than allow him to lose his reason. Oh, such memories born to a man's soul. I can see that it still moves you. How did you survive? By contemplating the flaws in the failed bombing attempt, I planned in great detail how a successful rebellion could be devised. It would have a tight inner circle who knew everything, and other circles knowing only what they needed to know. I kept it intellectually alert and endured their physical punishment. And after some 15 years, you were released? Yes. I returned home socially inept and suspicious of others. I still felt I had devised a good plan while in prison, but I was suspicious of others' intentions. I was harsh with anyone who showed no interest in the Republican cause and unforgiving towards anyone who felt I had betrayed it. Dublin City was very passive. I couldn't understand why there was no rising during the Boer War. You felt alone in your Republican sentiments. Don't presume to describe my country to me. <laughs> You're still rather touchy, Mr. Clark. <laughs> oh, Pierce understood me. He said, separatists are apt to be cranky and sore-headed. Haven't I ever right to be cranky? I suppose you have. Anyway, I wasn't quite alone. I met Sean McDermott, and he expressed similar regrets. We both agreed that we would plan towards the very next opportunity, and we knew it would come, because England is always at war with someone. So, it was Dublin then, and planning. I see. No, no, I could find no work in Dublin, so I returned to America, where I helped... Oh, God, I nearly said his name. I helped... Uh, J.D. found a newspaper, the Gaelic American... While working on the paper, I met and married Kathleen Daly, a nice, a niece of... Christ, this is getting complicated. Another J.D., but, but, but a different one. Good, uh, a wife, some warmth in your poor life. Uh, why didn't you stay in America? Ill health and rumours of an impending war between England and Germany impelled me home. This could be our opportunity. I was pleased on return to be welcomed. There was a new nationalist stirring. My prison time had given me some status and I found that others had similar ideas of rising. I was co-opted onto the Supreme Council of the IRB. I'm glad your sacrifices had been recognised. Yes, that was a hectic time. We formed several side organisations to serve aspects of the plan and to distract police suspicions. I opened a wee shop in Great Britain Street. I could do nothing about the name of the street. The shop served as a front for our meetings and message passing. You were that public? Yes. There was always a policeman in civilian clothes loitering across the street. But what could he do if someone came in to make a purchase and pass on a message? I reveled in it. I was finally manipulating them. So, the plans for a rising were forming. What of the Home Rule Act I'd, I've heard talk of? Would that not have delivered your goal without violence? Never. Redmond and the Home Rule Movement are interested in promoting Irish nationality within the British Empire. We've watched this British duplicity for centuries. Redmond is just the latest dupe. I read recently that Home Rule had reached the pinnacle of its success, and Redmond had gone much further than any of his predecessors in shaping British politics to the needs of the Irish. You must have read that in one of the Home Rule rags. Look, Redmond was either being deceived or was deceiving the Irish people. The Home Rule Bill says clearly that pressure of public opinion would require the bill to take account of Ulster's unionist opinion. And what was wrong with that? This was an open invitation to sedition by unionists to receive special treatment. In fact, 
their freedom to import arms was further evidence that the British were toying with Redmond for his support in the Commons and had no intention of delivering a substantial Home Rule Act. Asquith himself said that the coercion of Ulster was untainable. So you didn't give it a chance? Redmond didn't give it a chance. Eventually, he agreed to suspension of Home Rule for Ireland and Asquith agreed to suspension of partition of Ireland. They had him where they wanted him. And he's only wasting our time. So what happened next? Well, Sean McDermott and I were the ones driving our solution. We were impatient for revolution. We both shunned the limelight. We were bored backroom strategists. We needed a public orator to counter Redmond's rhetoric and to reach out to the citizens. We found that in Pierce. So, all was moving well? No, no, there were many tensions. A big split came in the Irish volunteers, provoked by Redmond and his call for Irish volunteers to enlist in the British Army. <laughs> Another part of his grand strategy. Explain that a bit more, please. Redmond advises that if the volunteer force, some 100,000 men, enlisted in mass to fight the Germans, the British would be so appreciative that they would grant full home rule to Ireland. <laughs> Seems reasonable. Just more British duplicity. This caused a serious split in the force. McDermott and I welcomed the split. The force was now reduced to two opposing rumps, which would be easier to infiltrate and fashion for revolution. The rump that remained, the other half marched off to the trenches. So, now all was moving as you planned? More or less. In 1915, I created the IRB Military Council to plan for war. A tight-knit group of trusted comrades, and we were as one in strategy. We enlisted Pat Pierce as spokesperson. I recall his rousing speech at the grave of O'Donovan Russell. It went something like, uh, The fools have left us our Fenian dead, and while, uh, and while, and while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. Marvellous! Marvellous! Far better than Redmond's let's all march off to France. Things were falling into place. Yes, my plans so carefully worked out in the dark of my English cell were coming to fruition. That was a fine plan, involving the finest Irish minds of this generation. And McNeil undermined it. Damn him. This was the counterman. Yes, and I was unaware of it. Sunday morning, I was in a safe house in Gardner Street when word was got to me. I went to Liberty Hall to meet with other members of the Military Council. I argued passionately for the rising to be launched as planned. I was terrified that my life's work, my, my plans that kept me sane, would not happen. What happened? Do you not read the papers, man? The rising did not take place as planned on Easter Sunday. They all voted against me, even McDermott. Oh, finally, we all agreed that the rising would proceed the following day, Easter Monday. And the proclamation, sir, was that composed at this meeting? Uh, the proclamation, largely written by Pierce, was ready to be printed in Liberty Hall. We just had to sign it. I was offered the position of President of the New Irish Republic, but I felt it a bad start if the first President had a prison record. I declined. We elected Pierce, but all insisted that my name should go first in the document. That pleased me. So, a mix started arising? Yes. In spite of all our carefully planning and infiltration of the volunteers, the IRB found themselves fighting the battle virtually alone. It was as well we had Connolly's citizen army. By a hair that McNeil had personally approached the assembled of Farnham Company, Pierce's company, and ordered them to disband. Out of concern for their safety, perhaps? Perhaps, perhaps out of concern for his own position of authority, in my opinion. 
Anyway, to the rising itself. Yes. I went in the car with McDermott to the GPO. And we waited for our uniform force to arrive. Most onlookers took our appearance in their stride. There always seemed to be men marching to, to no effect. But not today. Today they'd see a difference. I can see how this moves you. Myself and McDermott followed the charge into the GPO. Our green Irish Republic flag was raised at Princess Street corner and the tricolour at Henry Street end. And inside, do you know what was the first thing I did? I took my rifle butt and I smashed a great deal of glass partitioning. I explained to the men that it would make occupation easier. But in truth, I did it as my first blow against British imperialism. I did it for poor mad Whitehead and the others who suffered with me. You enjoyed that? Damn right. I felt 30 years younger. I'd never been happier. My first blow against England had been a total failure. Riddled with informers. I had learned and I had planned successfully. Why wouldn't I be happy? I paid a heavy price the first time. You'll pay a heavier price this time. I'd glad to pay it. <laughs> oh, do you know what my most abiding memory of the rising is? What? Connolly trying to convince a woman to leave the post office and she insisting on buying a stamp. Oh, damn would she leave and then trying to be patient and she saying, what kind of post office is this? Oh, what a rising indeed. A very odd rising. Do you know, Mr. Maxwell, I'm glad I also agreed to talk to your machine. Why so? When in the final days in the GPO, I tried to talk to a few, mostly women, who would surely survive. I knew we would be executed. So I tried to explain why we, who had signed the proclamation, had done as we had. But I doubt in the emotion of pending defeat if they fully comprehended. So this recording gives me another chance to explain our motives. I'm glad. And for the benefit of future listeners, I die convinced that as a result of our actions, the Irish people will now assert themselves. Pierce said as much as the finish. He always could be counted on for the right words. He told us that this was the right thing to do. If it hadn't been for this protest, the war would have ended and nothing would have changed. Emmett's to our rising is of nothing compared to this. They will talk about Dublin in the future as one of the splendid cities. As they speak of Paris, Dublin's name will be glorious forever. That sort of thing. Have you anything to say about the volunteers in the GPO? Well, they were reluctant to surrender. I told them that with my whole life struggle for freedom, I'm satisfied now. You should be too. Any other lasting memories, if that is possible in such a hectic week? Yes, my opinion of two men I've been suspicious of. First, the O'Rahilly. He was everywhere, energetic. Especially when the building began to burn. He organised fire crews. He really had joined the Rising. And secondly, James Connolly. He came late to the IRB, but during the week in the GPO, he became the Rising. And when I saw him being carried towards the British lines... That's when I knew our revolution was over. A strong memory. Yes, and another was later at the Rotunda. I saw a captured Irish Republic flag lying at the base of Parnell Monument. But it had served its purpose by then. And what of the trial itself? Were you happy with its conduct? It was a total farce. I expected nothing else. I heard that they had dug our graves in Arbor Hill before the trial began. I declined to participate. The charge contained the sentence that we had assisted the enemy. <laughs> I had advised all to use this clause to plead not guilty, as we had no interest in Germany's fate. So, you will die content, Mr. Clark? I will. But for a while, the trial looked too good for me. I became surly, 
scowling at the judge, Blackadder. I fear they'd send me back to prison for another 15 years. I'm glad, he said. Shoot him. I'll soon be safely out of their clutches. Amen. Amen again, Mr. Clark. Is that all you wish to record? We have a few moments. Did your family visit you? My wife Kathleen was being held in Dublin Castle. She was allowed a brief visit with me, and I told her again that I thought McNeil. But I was optimistic. I told her that I was convinced that our rising will have a very good effect on the morale of the country. I'm pleased that my lonely plans gained such wide acceptance. <sighs> I'll say no more. My say is said. Thank you, Mr. Clark. And God bless you. I'm Charlotte Tannen. We have in studio to discuss this recording historian Wilmoth Hines, who will assist in the understanding. Hello. Signora Maxwell Hogan, who owns the original recordings. We have panellists Roger Brazenby and Hugh Coy. So, what did you make of that? Hmm? Uh, Sorry, just one moment. Uh, We have a text coming in. It's, It's from John in Beaumont. He says, the rebels were wrong to start the war. They lacked a competent authority, nor was their action a last resort. They didn't give home rule a chance. Okay, well, that's a strong opinion, John. Can I throw that open to the panel? Yeah, I'm afraid I have to disagree with John on that one. Uh, Piers Connolly and their comrades didn't start the war. Conflict had existed sporadically over the centuries. Because Ireland was ruled by an alien usurper. And the ongoing relationship between usurper and native uh, is essentially a state of war. But is that enough of an excuse? <laughs> well, Roger, the doctrine of just rebellion asserts that any individual is free to commit acts of war mm. against the unjust invader of, of their country, even if there was no reasonable hope of success. And remember, there's also a UN resolution. 3070, I think. Mm. And it's specifically... Yeah specifically reaffirms the legitimacy of the people's struggle for liberation from colonial and foreign domination and alien subjugation by all available means, including armed struggle. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I hope that answers your query, John. Would anyone like else like to contribute to this or should we move on? Well, let's but move on. Uh, I, I, thought Roger, the, yeah. I thought the observations attributed to General Maxwell on the Irish was informative. Uh, that we deal with our madness through poetry. <laughs> I'm sure he was even more convinced when Pierce wrote, what was it, four poems just before his execution? I mean, can you, you can see Maxwell's point. Here's a lad about to be executed, and he's writing poetry. Mm. Yeah, well, yes, but uh, these were to go to his mother. Mm-hmm. But Maxwell considered them seditious and sent them to Asquith, the British Prime Minister. Oh. 
They were only they were only located in Asquith's papers in the 1960s. It would be hard to read much sedition into them. I think Maxwell was just in a, in a bloody-minded state and was inclined to do the opposite of what the insurgents asked him. OK, listen, can we remember that we're on Clark? And I myself thought it inspiring that he should stay sane by plotting a rising in his head, going over it and refining it even as he endured privation. Yes, that was absolutely remarkable. And, of course, his plans took on more definite form when he returned home and, and met Sean McDermott. Mm. And they saw in each other the man they were looking for. They were similarly secretive. The almost redundant IRB was revitalised by them and turned into the an instrument of almost immediate war. Clark was quite dismissive of anyone who fell short of his ambitions. Redmond got short shrift. McNeil was his nemesis and he couldn't forgive McNeil. Was home rule such a bad thing though? I mean, if it could have secured a measure of freedom without the bloodshed, wouldn't that have been better? Redmond, from my mind, was on the right track. (laughs) Yes. Please, please, Hugh, we're on air. Let's leave all the coarse talk outside, please. Sorry, sorry. All right, okay, okay. Uh, If I may... Sorry, uh, listeners, okay. uh, Sorry, Charlotte, if I may intervene here. It it was the passage of the Home Rule Bill that increased tensions right across Ireland. Uh, The main issue of contention during the British parliamentary debates was the coercion of Ulster. And Clark felt that even this did not go far enough? Is is that it? Uh, Yes, He and the IRB felt the whole thing was a distraction and while fueling tensions was doomed to fail anyway. What was the unionist opposition to home rule? Was it religious or political? It was, in many ways, uh, pragmatic. The Protestants of Ulster had done well with their industries, particularly linen and shipbuilding, and were socially and economically closer to the rest of Britain. Uh, They feared a Dublin parliament run by farmers would hamper their prosperity. Okay, let's stick with Clark, shall we? What did you make of his admission that they enlisted Pierce as the public voice of the IRB? Uh, I think that Clark genuinely appreciated Pierce's public oratory. Mm -hmm. His skills at saying what Clark felt needed saying. I I don't feel that they were using Pierce. (laughs) He modestly wouldn't take the position of President of the Republic because of his Fenian imprisonment. I think he could have taken it after all it was only for a week I think they just got a bit carried away with the ministries and titles you know no I don't know I, I think the, I think as far as I believe I, they were trying to establish a competent authority and an alternative administration isn't it amazing to walk these Dublin streets today and remember that they played such a role in this event hmm? Role is a good description, Charlotte. I have always felt that in many ways this was a theatrical military gesture. The rebels offered their lives and last actions to the Irish public as a work of art. How do you mean, Wilmot? The streets, the buildings, became props. In taking shelter in Dublin City's sturdiest buildings, the rebels were instinctively following in the footsteps of the ancient Gaelic clans who took refuge in the safe forests from where to launch revenge attacks. Go on. Yes, the, the buildings, like the woods, became sheltering havens and the English likewise behaved instinctively, destroying both forests and buildings to expose the rebels for execution. Yes, uh, I like the analogy of theatre. The rebel's shocking play was designed to wake their audience from their torpor. 
also because the British were forced on stage and became part of the drama, the public too became actors shouting encouragement or abuse as the drama directed. Others just became the audience, often standing dangerously close to the actors to get a good view of the performance. Interesting. Oh, come on now, Hugh. Let me, <laughs> let me have my analogy. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Even... The, 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 the owl ones, the Shawleys, were part of the drama, displaying their belligerent Britishness. And, of course, the actors in the Monto ignored the main script and staged their own anarchic production, smashing every plate glass window they could find in Saxwell Street, donning and discarding costumes with abandon. They had a rare old time. <laughs> You know, newspapers generally protect their readers from the brutality of war. No newspaper in 1916 published a photograph of maimed world war bodies abroad. But Dublin citizens could see and touch dead bodies. It was this theatre. In fact, if this was theatre, I should say, it was certainly realistic. Of course. (laughs) We didn't get to pause long enough to fully absorb the messages of 1916. The blackened hands didn't do introspection. I can see you all want to join in. 1916 was also a fertility rite, although the public and the British didn't realise that martyrdom was written into the plot. The blood spilt would feed new life into Ireland. Uh, As each actor got closer to the moment of their sacrifice, they became even more transcendent. Their prose roared, their poetry soared. They were rehearsing their party lines. You really like this analogy, don't you? <laughs> I do, Sherlock. <laughs> and there was also a subtext to the drama. There were the aesthetics, the costumes mm. and the plot line that showed that even in the red fire of war, the Irish could be the more civilised of the two armies. Right. This too would be noted by the audience at home and abroad. This was street theatre with grand ambitions. Such theatrical military gestures ended with Pierce and Conley. <laughs> with the dramatic final scene, Dublin citizens watched the blood oozing from under the door of Kilmainham oh. Jail and began to understand the sacrifice being made within. Oh, gosh, such an image. This is pretty horrific. Okay, (laughs) listen, we'll move on. We have a text in from Deborah in Santry and she asks for opinions on the methods used by the British to bring about such overwhelming Britishness. Uh, If I might take that up, Charlotte. Uh, First, you destroy the local culture and replace it with a version of the colonial culture. Mm -hmm. Also, the planting of self-loathing for anything of the earlier culture Self-doubt creeps into the native psychology, feeding into a dependency on the colonial structures due to a deepening sense of powerlessness. (laughs) Yes, and such dependencies are so deep-rooted that they remain potent long after the coloniser is gone. You can chase the coloniser from your territory, but it's much harder to decolonise the mind. I think you were saying in this country, haven't you? You can take the boy out of the bog, but you can't take the bog out of the boy. That's <laughs> true. Right, right, Hugh. Um, Vincent Intala asks, you must be getting us online, Vincent. He asks, how did 1916 come about in such unfavourable cultural circumstances? Well, first of all, it's important to say that nothing 
much would have happened without the incitement of the IRB. The poor were not the initiators. A starving man only has food on his mind, and that is why any sensible coloniser will keep his subjects hungry. No, I must disagree on that point. A great number in middle-class Ireland were not hungry. Quite the opposite. A coloniser also needs to have some of the colonised content. High food prices kept the grosser class in comfort, and they in turn funded the conservative clergy. There was a great rump of Shoneens, is that what you call them? Who were satisfied with things as they were. Hmm. Shoneen? What's a Shoneen? I don't think I've heard that word before. <laughs> well, <laughs> Wilmot, yeah? Yeah, it's a, a contemptuous, contemptuous term for an Irish person who imitates English ways. Right. I think the word is Hiberno English uh, rather than Irish. Anyway, <laughs> the leaderless poor could not originate any subversive activity. Leadership would have to come from those more elevated in the class structures of Ireland at the time. The rebel leaders. Uh, Yes. Uh, In 1916, uh, uh, the still hungry poor were led into revolution by a barrister and school principal, a university academic, the son of a count and the daughter of a lord. (sighs) We should all call their names and their dreams this week. For to be forgotten is to die twice. We are remembering them, Hugh. (laughs) Not in any meaningful way. The intense humanity of that period, the willingness to engage with desperate ideas, to sift through competing proposals in the search for solutions. All this has gone from us. We must rise above cheesy sentimentality to emulate their creativity. I believe we are honouring them sensibly. We're not! The era of feverish debate, the issuing of manifestos and theatrical military gestures has ended. (coughs) No one alludes to dreams anymore. No one now makes commitments to equality for all. Hmm. Um, Okay, listen, Sally in Finglas asks us to talk about the women in the rising. A good point, as the women are largely written out of the story. Well, one woman was almost executed, but the Mm -hmm. British... Hesitated. Was this Countess Markovich of the Citizen Army? Yes, it was. It took uh, many years before a proper account was compiled by historians of the role of Irish women in the Rising. Hmm. And what sort of record now exists, if any? Well, Countess Markovich was undoubtedly the main female of the Easter Rising, a lively revolutionary, a politician, mm-hmm. a suffragette and a socialist, while other nations were still fighting to see her voting rights for women. Markievicz had become one of the first women in the world to be elected and to hold a cabinet position as Minister for Labour in the Irish Republic from 1919 to 1922. And can you name any other women involved? Certainly. The women involved were as ideologically committed as the men. They fought as fiercely during the week and surrendered as soldiers of the Republic. More than 100 women are said to have taken part directly in the rising. Many were members of the Republican organisation Common Amman, uh, some that should be mentioned are uh, Helena Maloney, Madeleine French Mullen, Kathleen Lynn, Rose McNamara, right. and of course Elizabeth O'Farrell. They all helped to alter the course of Irish history. Some of these were actually in the GPO. Yes, they were, and among the last people to leave the GPO were Common Among members Winnie Carney, Julia Grennan, and Elizabeth O'Farrell. They were doctors, nurses, and snipers fighting alongside the men. 
Julia Grennan was a dispatch carrier during Easter week and brought information from the GPO to garrisons around the city. And North Safar will walk with Pierce to surrender. Oh, gosh. OK, a text mm. in from Brian in Ballymun. He wonders why the British Empire always forces its colony to fight for their freedom. <laughs> That's easy. Would a people appreciate a freedom given to them? The English knew it had to be won to be appreciated. They were always a thoughtful people. Mm. I myself, I thought it was a very poignant moment when Clark said of Connolly that when he saw him being carried towards the British lines, that that's when he knew the revolution was mm. over. Yeah, mm. that, that was a powerful mm. statement. Uh, it showed how the IRB and the citizen army had melded together. Mm. For the moment. Mm. And for me, the most telling and human moment was when Tom Clark confided in the interviewer that he had deliberately goaded the trial judges out of fear that they wouldn't shoot him, but send him back to prison. He didn't want that. <laughs> Any final words on Tom Clark? Hmm. I think Roger. we probably said it all. <laughs> OK. Well, listen, I'd like to pose a question for our listeners. What would you have done if alive in 1915 and 1916? Would you have followed the call from John Redmond and marched away to fight for the freedom of Belgium? Or would you have listened to Pierce and Connolly and marched into the GPO? Text us with your responses and we'll air as many as we can. Right, listeners, tomorrow we'll hear the voice of Joseph Plunkett. Till then, I'll say goodbye and slán. You've just listened to a special programme dedicated to life and death of Tom Clark. We would like to thank Signora Maxwell Hogan for allowing us to digitally enhance the original Edison recordings from the period. We'd also like to thank our own Charlotte Tannen for hosting the panel discussions. And we'd like to thank her studio guests Hugh Coy, Roger Brazenby and Wilmot Hines. Tomorrow, at the same time, we'll broadcast the voice of Joseph Plunkett. Until then, salon. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.